Many of you guys know that I had immigrated to this country when I was in junior high. So I was at the age of 12, soon to be turning 13. And as you would imagine, during that season of my life as a young teenager, there were a lot of conflicts wherever I went uh, because of the volatility of the people in that season of their lives. School was a battleground, a clashing of different personalities, clashing of identities and, and different tensions. And I quickly learned that um, there were to be a lot of fights and scruffles. And back in those days, I'm not sure how things are in school, but uh, uh, scrapping and scruffling in, in the schoolyard were a lot more common and relatively safer than we see nowadays. And um, it took a while for me to, uh, I guess, adapt to the new way of fighting in this new country. Uh, back in my motherland in, in you know, in, in Korea, uh, fights didn't really involve much talking, but I had learned quickly uh, there's a long prelude before actually engaging fiscal scruffle here in the States. Anyway, anyways, but I also picked up a unique uh, language or unique phrase as I was kind of adjusting to my life here as I kind of learning. Going into ninth grade, I had learned a new vocabulary that I didn't really face, that I didn't really recognize in the years prior. Um, and, and when we would get in fights, this phrase was often thrown out. And the, the opponent, I, I, the first time I encountered was when I heard th- this phrase was, hey man, where are you from? Well, in my young mind and, and you know, still in the stage of learning English, uh, I, I thought it was really, really bizarre that someone would ask me that question. Um, obviously, I'm, I, I live in this city. Obviously, I live in the vicinity of this community, and, and we are right here, or some, probably somewhere in Downey. But I didn't quite understand what the phrase meant. Where are you from? You know? And I, as soon as, as, as this as sort of incident repeated, I then realized that uh, I wasn't being asked of, uh, of my residence or my location, you know? Uh, that phrase, where are you from, conveyed the notion, hey, where do you belong? Uh, to whom do you belong? And sometimes uh, they ask that question because they want to know if you have any affiliations with gangs and such. So where are you from? Meaning conveying the message of who's with you? Who do you represent? Who are you really? And this short phrase, and years later I realized as I'm studying God's word, it's really, it really was an existential question. <laughs> Really, and much like the phrase we find in Romeo and Juliet, when, when the phrase is thrown out, where are thou, uh, Romeo, you know that this isn't a question of location or geography. Rather, it is a question of one's identity. Now, what, what, what's the point of this, right? B- back in the days when that question is thrown at me, where are you from? You know what? In that brief moment, it, it gives me the chance to really reflect, meaning I better know who I am. I better know that I better be ready before I engage in this fight. It's a way of sizing up. It's a way of getting ready and preparing mentally. Oftentimes, how you answer the question or how that other person answers this question determines the quality of the fight. Or sometimes, by the uh, mere exchange of these things, a couple phrases, determine whether there was going to even be a 
a fight. Even for those that, you don't, that didn't belong to a gang, at that moment you recognize the battle that you are about to enter into. Sometimes gave you great confidence, or sometimes upon hearing that person's response, you immediately get discouraged and you realize, you know what, this is not the fight that I should be getting into. All of that to convey, knowing who you are, prepare for the incumbent fight. Now, what does this have to do with 1 Peter chapter 2? I believe 1 Peter chapter 2, Apostle Peter is challenging, really uh, essentially challenging the Christians, all of the Christians, conveying the notion, you better really know who you are. Know where you are from. Know who you are representing. It's a question of identity that Apostle Peter is really enforcing at this time. Because proper understanding of your identity leads to proper living. Let me say that again. Peter is conveying the notion that proper understanding of your identity leads to proper living. You see, let me summarize a little bit here. Hopefully this will tie in and what Peter is trying to encapsulate in his letter to the Christians in the Christian cities and the churches around. From chapter 1 to what we have read thus far, it's really a message of reinforcing the spiritual identity that is found in Jesus Christ. He opens up his letter this way in chapter 1, verse 1. You are living as strangers and as aliens, meaning we should stand out, not because we are weird, not because we are, you know, some understandable, like really difficult to comprehend, all simply because we are citizens of heaven and we should live in the way that we, where we represent the kingdom of God. And he goes on to saying that we live not for our life here on earth, but we live instead for eternity. And it's because of the inheritance that we have, meaning the rewards that belongs in eternity. And that's why we are able to endure through hardships in this life. And Peter, again, affirms the identity that we have in Christ. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Be holy, for I am holy. And he says, For it is written, For I am holy, so you shall now be holy. Live as the one that is separated from the world and now separated unto God. Verse 22 highlights the importance of this communal living uh, and affirming that our alienness, the way we interact together, the way we treat one another in Christ ought to be different than that of the world. Verse 25, chapter 1, he's talking about God's enduring word. And he highlights the fact that we are the people of the book. Meaning if you really want to live differently... And Peter highlights the importance that we need to interact differently with the book. And we move on to chapter 2. And it's no different here. He's highlighting it's a continual affirmation of our identity that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, put aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and all slander. And it, it gives us this notion, as Peter is talking about this, it's an, it's an idea of a dirty clothing. It's an idea of a stinky garment, meaning 
You, when you have a stinky garment, what, do you, what should you do? What do you want to do? You put it away. You put it away. You take it off and you put it away. Much like what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your true and proper worship. He talks about, and because of that, we shall no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but we shall be transformed. We shall be transformed, meaning we should have a change in form by the renewing of our minds. So he carries this notion as followers of Jesus Christ that we should no longer live the way we used to. We should no longer convey that sentiments or we should no longer bear resemblance of our old lives. All that to what? Highlight that we are not of this world. We don't belong here. We are in this world, but we are actually citizens of heaven. You see, understand, church? What Peter is doing is a continual affirmation of our new identity that is in Christ Jesus. And he really wants you to know, he really wants all of us to know that we are different, that we belong to God, that we belong to another kingdom. And because of that, we shall live differently. Verse 2, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, right? He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word of God. As if re reciting uh, that we are born of the indestructible seed, as if quoting the Old Testament was not enough, Apostle Peter says, crave for the word of God. And he uh, it provides this beautiful and powerful imagery of that of an infant baby. And he says, as like newborn babies, as the newborn baby longs for milk, so shall you long for the word of God. When he, when he brings up this image of babies, guys, do not be deceived. Do not be misconstrued that this is a peaceful image. This is, a, oh, babies, so cute, pure, innocent. This particular, at least in my reading, this particular image is a violent image. It's an aggressive image. It's an outright all go, all hell break, hell breaking in your household image. Have you ever? I mean, some of you young parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Have you ever seen the face of a baby longing to be fed? A newborn baby. Every two hours. Sometimes gifted children, every hour, every hour and a half, when they cry, when they shout, when they squirm, everything has to stop. And the baby will not relenting. Baby will not shouting and crying until he or she is fed. Peter says, I want you to not only just read God's word, I want you to crave God's word. I want you to desire God's word in such manner like a baby crying out for milk. Long for the word of God, right? You see, 
if the babies don't get fed, not only are they going to be unhappy, but when babies are unfed, the reality is they're going to be unhealthy. Friends, if I asked you what your time in the Bible is like, what words would you describe? You don't have to answer that. Actually, you can't because I'm not there with you. But, but if I were to ask you what words would you describe, what words would you use to describe your time in the Word of God? I mean, are you just hungry for it? Do you even long for it? Do you desire it? Do you devour it? Do you study it? If most people's answer is no, then we shouldn't really be surprised about the lack of spiritual growth that we see in our own lives. Apostle Peter affirms that truth in verse 3. He says, crave for the word of God so that you may grow. Meaning he says, if you don't read God's word, don't expect to grow. Don't be surprised if you see lack of progress, lack of growth in your life. So if you don't feed an infant for about a week, for a few days, I guess the question is, will it live? Maybe, probably, but will it thrive? Probably not. In the same way, if we, read, if we didn't read God's word as often, if we read God's word maybe weekly, will we survive? Will our faith survive? Probably, maybe. But will we thrive? I don't think so. Likely not. So Paul highlight, uh, Peter highlights that we should spend adequate time in the word of God. And says, so that... By it, you may grow in respect to salvation. And he highlights this beautiful, beautiful notion and the importance of that we as Christians, we as people of God, we as God's chosen, we need to be conveying, we need to be conveying this notion that there is progress in our faith. There's actual growth taking place. There's actual development taking place in the course of our faith lives. He's making the argument that our faith in Christ is not the end. Christianity is not a destination. Christianity is a journey. You don't come across Christianity upon discovering Christ. That's not the end. This guy, this, uh, uh, discovering Christ, giving your life, surrendering your life at that moment, that is merely the beginning of your journey of faith. It is not the end of it. Your decision to follow, I'm so glad you did it. I'm so glad that you came to church. I'm so glad that you attended your retreat at, at, when you were uh, in junior high and high school. I'm so glad that you gave your life to Jesus. But guess what? Your Christian faith journey began at that moment. And you and I are called by God to make progress. You and I are called by God, encouraged by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit himself, that we are to spend the rest of our lives progressing in our faith, being sanctified daily in the image of Christ Jesus. And we ready ourselves. We are being beautified. We are being changed day by day, minute by minute, so that when Christ himself appears, 
or reappears, that we are ready as his bride. Jesus, we are ready for you. We spent all of our lives getting ready for your return. All of this to convey that we ought to be growing. We ought to be progressing. Are you with me? Verse 5, you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And Peter is continuing the notion and the importance of that we are to uh, be growing. We are moving, right? We are moving. We are being changed. And he also says we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, For this moment, guys, friends, put yourself in the first century, okay? You are in the Roman world. You see temples everywhere. You see temples of Zeus. You see the temple of Zeus. You see the temple of Mars. Uh, You see a temple dedicated to the emperor Augustus. You see many, many temples all around in the Roman world. And I'm talking, I'm not just talking about like, you know, churches or, or decent, medium-sized churches or even mega churches here in, in America. I'm talking about massive temples. I'm talking about some temples as large as 60 football fields. That's right. 60 football fields. You know why? Because if I told you acres, square footage, you can't even imagine that. But when I gave you the image of Football fields, 60 football fields, immediately there was a connection, right? Some temples as large as 60 football fields. Big marbled altars, huge stairs leading to the front of the temple. And every single stone laid by man, I mean, these big, burly, strong men, beautiful temples, just marvel like huge temples. But Peter is not talking about a physical building. Is he? He's talking about spiritual temple. He's saying, you are the temple of God. You know, Apostle Paul had a similar notion and and similar message to the church in Corinth when he talked about, you are the temple of God. And he says, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And Peter shares the same sentiments here. He's saying, you're being built up as a house of God. You're being built up so that God is making his residence. God is planning to remain in you continuously. He's certainly not talking about building a a, a physical house or physical temple. We're not a museum. We're not a building. We're not a monument. We are a movement It's a spirit of God who is alive and powerful. We are a movement as we continue to devote ourselves, as we continue to purify our hearts, as we continue to devote ourselves to living a life that is pleasing unto God according to his word. God says the spirit of God will now dwell in and through us. And verse 9, and I want us to focus here. This is kind of the main and the remaining portion of my message today. I'm going to read again verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
All right. Now, so far, Peter is telling us or telling the, the Christians in those cities what they should do. But Peter now uh, uh, explicitly says, well, that's what I want you to do, but now I'm going to affirm, now I'm going to convey who you are and why you do those things and why you should live in such way has everything to do with who you are. And first, Peter says, you are God's chosen people. You're God's chosen people. When Peter says you're God's chosen people, Peter is really conveying the notion of that God has accepted you. Friends, tell yourself, God accepts me. Amen. God accepts you. When, when, we, when Peter is saying, God, we are God's chosen people, he's talking about that we are accepted by God. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his message Bible. He says, you are the ones chosen by God. From nothing to something, from rejected and accepted. Let me say that again. You are chosen by God. God chose you, so you went from nothing to something, from being rejected to accepted. Most of us uh, have encountered this during the course of our lives. We understand and we experience just the power of acceptance. For me, it goes all the way back to my junior high years when we were playing basketball during recess or during snack time and during lunchtime and after school. I mean, we would just run towards uh, uh, the, the, the quad area and the basketball courts. And uh, unless you are the first ones to grab a basketball, because whoever grabs the basketball becomes a team captain automatically, right? And everyone else, we're lined up. We're lined up. Huge lines formed everywhere. And the captains and the ones that who have the balls would then make their choices. Sometimes, um, sometimes I would run as fast as I could because I feel like if I'm the first one in line, maybe there's a greater chance of me being selected. And you soon find out that that has very little to do. You're then, then selecting has very little to do with how fast you arrive. It has everything to do with how well you could play the game of basketball. Oh, that's right. I spent the first year playing very little basketball in the seventh grade. But as time progressed, oh, but when you get picked, and sometimes because he's your friend, but when you get picked, oh, you feel so good about it. Doesn't it feel so good? When you realize, man, I am worthy. I'm accepted by this team captain. I'm good enough. In the same way, in my, in my own marriage as well, the, the breaking point for me when I finally got married was that when I realized, when I discovered the power and the beauty of, man, I don't have to hide who I am. I don't have to fake it. I don't have to put on new faces and images to cover up my faults. But there was a breakthrough in my relationship with Esther when we were dating, when I realized that, man, I really can be accepted as I am. You know, I'm a a writer, I guess, by nature. I I prefer writing more than talking. So I I remember writing this long letter, uh, and according to my wife, uh, unnecessarily long and confusing. But anyways, that's my letter. 
And I wrote, her, I wrote, that, I wrote in that very important letter, I said, I, 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 I just want to be seen. I want to be heard. And I want to be known. For the first time in my life, I'm ready to disclose. And I simply said, I want to be known. All because I think I was trying to convey the notion that I really want to be accepted by you. And of course, when she indeed said yes, I mean, the power, that the feeling of acceptance is so powerful and beautiful. And Peter affirms that God doesn't just love you. He loves you because he has chosen you. You are God's chosen people. You are God's select. And he said he wants you to know that. And dear brothers and sisters at Rooftop Church, I want you to know today that God has selected you. God has chosen you because he has accepted you just as you are. Amen. Second, Peter says, you are a holy nation. You are God's own possession. Peter is addressing the importance of understanding who they really were. And Peter says, you are God's people. God has chosen you, and you absolutely belong to God himself. And ask yourself this question, friends, this morning or today. What is your worth? How much do you think you are worth? You see, to answer this question, we need to ask another question. When we ask ourselves, how much are we worth, we need to understand what determines our value, all right? And I think two questions that are really important in determining the value of something. First is, the value depends on what someone is willing to pay for something. Second, value also depends on who has owned an item or where it came from. You with me? Recently, I think this past week, Kobe Bryant's rookie card, Kobe Bryant, one of the basketball, basketball legends, his rookie card went for $1.8 million. Guys, one single card made out of paper, little bit of plastic, has some colors, has some shiny parts in it. $1.8 million. What creates the value of that card? You see, value depends on what someone is willing to pay for something. I don't care if it's just a piece of paper. If someone willing to pay more than a million bucks for it, guess what? That drives the value. Second, value also depends on who has owned an item or where it came from. And it's so expensive. The value is so high because how rare it is. It came from a place where there are only like one or two. And in that condition, the only one. If value, if your value really depended upon what someone is willing to pay for and also depends on who has owned an item in the past, then here's your value, friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 23 says this, you have been bought and paid for by Christ, so you belong to him. Who owns you? What was paid for 
you. Jesus Christ has put a claim on you. And Christ paid for you with his life. God exchanged his own son for you. Dear friends at Rooftop, the Christ proves your value. God says, I love you this much. And he put the highest value of anyone can ever have on a person. I love you this much. And he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus himself gave up his life for you. That's your value. That's your value. Peter says, you, my friends, are God's own possession. You are a holy nation. Third and last point. He says, I chose you. He says, God chose you. You're God's own possession. Lastly, he says, you're God's royal priesthood. Now, that may sound a little scary for us, doesn't it? That you are a priest, I'm a priest. That sounds like a lot of pressure for us. You see here, Peter is saying that uh, you, you need to understand the two benefits uh, uh, that priests have are now made available for all of us, for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the two inherent benefits of being a priest are these. One, you have direct access to God, meaning this is your right. You don't have to pray through anyone else. You don't have to confess your sins to anybody else. You have direct access to God. Your experiences of God is now made realized firsthand. Second benefit. Now, we have the responsibility to minister to the needs of other people. Did you know that? Every believer and follower of Jesus Christ, every Christian is a minister of God. Not a pastor, not every Christian is a pastor, but every Christian is a minister of God. Meaning, you and I have been redeemed. You and I have been saved. Meaning, you and I have been gifted by God so that we may serve others. Peterson's The Message Bible again says this about that particular portion. He says, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for us. The Latin word for the word priest means bridge. When God calls us that now we are, God, we are royal priesthood, we're kingly priests, is conveying the notion that you and I have been saved. Now we are to save and bring people. We and I have been saved so that we can serve. I can turn it around. If not for serving, what are we really saved for? And that portion of that passage in verse 9 highlights the notion that we are God's priests. We are to become the bridge of people. A very prominent pastor once said this, I would never want to reach out someday with a soft, 
uncalloused hand. A hand that never dirtied by serving and shake the hand that is nail pierced. And shake the nail pierced hand of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. I will never want to reach out someday with a soft, uncalloused hand, a hand never dirty by serving, and shake the nail pierced hand of Jesus. Powerful, isn't it? Friends, I want to remind you that you and I have been chosen by God called and commissioned by God so that we may serve him by serving his people. Here's my last and final point of today's message. Peter not, wants you, not only wants you to know who you are, he doesn't just remind you of who what your identity is, but at the end of that description of who you are, he gives us a charge. He gives us a very specific and tangible action item of what we should do. And he says, this is who you are, and I want you to know this. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, so that, so that, it's a conditional. Now it's in the connective statement, right? I want you to know this. This is your identity. Know who you are because that leads to the next action item. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So that your life is a proclamation of who our God is. So that the way you live is a testament of God's faithfulness, God's love, God's kindness, God's power, God's gentleness, God's patience, generosity, God's mercy, God's grace. The way you live your life is to exemplify of who our God is. Come on, somebody. And it says the affirmation of your identity leads to the proclamation of his identity. The world is supposed to get the sense that there is a God who is real, that there is a God who is loving and forgiving, that there is a God who is just but at the same time merciful, that there is a God who is holy. Through the way you live, through the way I live, the world is supposed to get the sense that maybe there is a reality that is beyond the life here on earth. The world is supposed to get the sense of hope and excitement that the reality of eternity, that the reality of the kingdom of God is so much better and infinitely more exciting than the reality of life here on earth. And Peter is saying, that's up to you. I, I want you to understand who you are in Christ because the affirmation of your identity leads to proclamation of who our God is. Dear friends, do you know who you are? If there was ever any doubt of your identity, if there was ever insecurity of if you should feel adequate or if you should ever feel good about yourself, this is who you are. You are God's chosen people.
God has personally called you. God has personally claimed you. God has personally put a stake in your life. He says, this one is mine. And I've chosen, I have, because there's value, I've accepted him, I've accepted you. Now, not only do I accept him, not only do I accept him, now I've commissioned him, I've commissioned her so that the rest of the world can be brought back onto me. You know, uh, growing up in a church or having served many years in a church, you know, we used to, my old church, we used to do this thing, annual event called VBS, Vacation Bible School. And one of the favorite events of mine, and, and it's just enjoyable. It's so powerful, so big and glamorous, right? And I, I love VBS because uh, every year you get new T-shirts. I don't know what it is about pastors. We love free T-shirts. We love free church T-shirts. Anyways, and I forget what year. I think it's like 98 or 99, that particular year. And still to this day, my favorite VBS shirt of all time. Simply had a crown on the front. It says, do you know who I am? On the bottom. Do you know who I am? It's a big fat crown on the top of it. Do you know who I am? And on the back, it says, I'm a child of the king. And, you know, call me cheesy, corny, but I loved wearing that T-shirt wherever I went. I loved wearing that T-shirt even at church. I, want the whole, I wanted the whole world to know, man, do you know who I am? Do you know where I'm from, I say? <laughs> do, you, do you know who I belong to? Do you know who I represent? Do, do you know who's walking with me? Do you know who I am? And there's a certain level of swag and attitude and, and, and power and like authority about it. And point to the phrase, I'm a child of the king. Darn right I am. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you are a child of the king of the universe. You're, the child of, uh, you're a child of God. Know who you are today. And that should absolutely change and impact the way you live and you face the world. Amen.